0: Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This episode of the Plant Proof Podcast features Dr. Michelle McMack. Michelle is a board certified internal medicine physician and assistant professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine. An honors graduate of Yale University and Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. She practices primary care, internal medicine, directs a weight management program, and teaches doctors in training at Bellevue Hospital Center in New York City. In 2014, Dr. McMacken received an NYU fellowship grant to develop an evidence-based nutrition curriculum for her physician colleagues, and she is committed to educating patients, doctors, and the public about the power of healthful eating for disease prevention and reversal. Dr. McMackin has received the Faculty Teacher of the Year award 3 times and has been featured on the Rich Roll podcast, Forks Over Knives, Serious Doctor Radio, Mind Body Green, as well as in several documentary films, including What the Help, From the Ground Up, and Code Blue. All righty, Dr. Michelle McMack, and welcome to the Plant Proof
1: Podcast. Thank you.
0: It is an absolute pleasure to have you in here this evening. And we've just been chatting for the last 30 or 60 minutes, and I'm super excited about the various points of discussion that we're going to touch on. I know that I've already learned so much. And if, if you're listening, you are uh, set for a really, really fascinating discussion here on health, wellness, and also just a, some insight into what medical students in, in the States are being taught in terms of nutrition and preventing and treating chronic disease. I think a great place to start is to understand your own personal story and what inspired you to change the way that you eat.
1: Sure. So my story kind of began after college. I was a English major who had no science background at all. And I never thought I would go to medical school, but I ended up working as a writer editor at the Centers for Disease Control and got really excited about public health and science and ended up going back and taking all my science classes and then enrolling in med school. And I had a very traditional training, very typical of what most medical students in the United States would get. And throughout my training, I pretty much had, you know, just like most medical students, I learned how to treat life threatening emergencies of the common chronic diseases that we all see all the time heart disease and diabetes, cancer. I learned about how to manage those diseases before they became life-threatening. And I got really good at prescribing pills. And I know a lot about pharmacology and how that works. I really wasn't taught much in the way of prevention, at least in terms of how food intersects with health. In fact, almost nothing that I can recall. And certainly not about other aspects of Prevention that have to do with lifestyle, like healthy sleep and exercise. So it was very focused on pharmacology and management of disease. And when I finished my medical school and residency training, and I started working where I work now, which is at Bellevue Hospital here in New York City, I continued to have a very traditional practice and I just did what I was taught. And so when patients would come to me and have their checkup, if someone I was meeting for the first time and I would check their cholesterol, and it was high, I would call them up and say, hey, I've got the perfect drug for you. And same thing for high blood pressure and same thing for diabetes and so forth and so forth.
0: Which based on your training was the correct thing to do.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I was following guidelines. I was following the guidelines that are recommended. There would be times where I would say, you know, I would give sort of lip service to lifestyle change, but it wasn't, I didn't really have the tools or the... I wasn't trained in how to talk to people about how to change their lifestyle, and i wasn't I wasn't that excited about it because I hadn't seen it work personally because I hadn't tried it. So throughout my my own path becoming a physician and and my training, I had my own sort of separate personal journey around food. And that was that I'd been a vegetarian for a very long time, actually since I was thirteen. And wow. yeah, and then, around 10 years ago, I actually decided to go completely vegan. And that was mostly out of just concern that I didn't want to support industries that weren't really aligned with my values. And I'd become aware of some of the things that happened to animals in the food industry. And it just, it it didn't sit well with me, but I, it was never something that I brought to work. You know, I never would discuss my eating habits with my patients or
0: but at that stage then, you're i mean you you're a trained doctor and you make that decision to change your personal diet. How much research did you do at that stage? I'm sure you had similar questions given that you hadn't done a whole lot of nutrition training, similar questions about things like B12 or protein or these types of common questions. Did you, did you have to start really digging deep in your own research
1: then? Yeah, I did. I mean, there weren't the resources then that we have now basically. I mean, I, I had books and a couple of random podcasts and online, maybe a few online resources, but I did some research. I did what I could do. And for me, it was, you know, I have the luxury of living in New York City. So there were a lot of, you know, a lot more options, relatively speaking back then. And for me, it was just a matter of, you know, quite honestly, it was like, how do I not eat cheese? You know, how do I actually <laughs> just not eat cheese? And I'd been, a, since I'd been a vegetarian for so long, I, I don't think it was such a radical change except for the cheese part. But no, I didn't have any real training in nutrition or, you know, I just I just kind of got by.
0: So you've, you've changed your diet. You're, you're still clinically treating people the same way though, based on what you'd learned in your degree. At what point did you decide, okay, my, my own personal diet is is better for not just me, but my patients. And I should be bringing this knowledge into the clinic.
1: So everything kind of came together in uh, 2013, when I attended a conference called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And honestly, I I had a few extra um, continuing medical education funds, like a few dollars left in my funding. And I had, I was like, let me go to a conference. And I, I don't know why, but I Googled lifestyle medicine. I Googled lifestyle. And I think I thought American college of lifestyle medicine, that means like talking about how I can have a great lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be an awesome conference. It's going to be, you know, we're going to learn how to like, yeah, (laughs) we're just going to have a great time. And I'm going to learn how to have a great balanced lifestyle um, instead of working so hard. And, but what I learned at that conference completely blew my mind. And changed forever the way I practice medicine. So I heard literally luminaries in the field of lifestyle medicine and and nutrition. So I heard Dr. Esselstyn for the first time, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, I heard Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Dean Ornish, and all these people that just, Dr. David Katz, people that completely blew me away as far as presenting the science on nutrition. And I remember being so so excited by this information that I literally couldn't sleep at this conference. I was like up, started reading journal articles and started just, I had no idea that, that there was actually that much evidence. And so that Monday, when I got back to work after the conference, I remember my very first patient was on like nine o'clock on Monday morning was this woman who has, um, she's had diabetes for a while. She has heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. And for the very first time in my treating her, I asked her what she eats. Yeah, wow.
0: So it I've was a never bit of an epiphany that. at the conference. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, it must've been a good feeling on one side that these really well-respected doctors were standing before you, telling you that you should be promoting a certain diet, which is something that you had already personally been doing. So it was reinforcing that.
1: Yeah, it was It was sort of the the personal and the professional unified. And what could you possibly you know, what more could you possibly want than living your values and knowing that there's science backing you up and seeing that at that point it was very early on. But as I started to actually ask my patients what they were eating and help them make changes, I started seeing transformations within four to six weeks when they came back and their cholesterol was lower or they came back and their blood pressure was better. And that just reinforced it all for me even more. And I was at that point pretty much at the 10-year mark of my practice. And that's the kind of point, that's sort of the point where a lot of doctors start to feel signs of burnout.
0: Yeah. Wow. But you felt a new lease
1: on (laughs) it. Exactly. I was like, this is actually... Reborn. Yeah. So while my patients were transforming, I felt like I was transforming and it all kind of came together in an amazing way for me.
0: Starting to implement that into your, your patient consultations and talking more about nutrition. Was there, I mean, the way that you do it now compared to in 2013, has that changed? Are you are you getting the same sorts of questions from patients? How were you initially suggesting that they looked towards a plant-based diet compared to now?
1: I am definitely getting a lot of the same questions, but I'm just a lot more efficient at handling them. And I think that I'm also, I've come up with a lot of different strategies for helping people change and I also feel so solid in the evidence that's out there that I feel very, very comfortable advising people on a really evidence-based approach, whether it's, you know, them going hundred percent plant-based or going, you know, just moving along the spectrum towards a healthier diet. And so I've gotten, I've just gotten much more efficient at it. And, and at the same time, seeing people literally reverse disease, literally come to me with diabetes with very uncontrolled sugars, and then four months later, they they almost don't have diabetes anymore, and yeah, they're wow. off medications. I, nothing could be more rewarding. I mean, that that's wh- why. Why else would you go to medical school? I mean, why else would you?
0: Yeah. So the, these do are, this? these are people that have a very well previously would have been given a very poor prognosis.
1: Right. They just medicated
0: for the rest of their life.
1: Tons of medications, insulins, risk you know all, all kinds of complications it's it's just it's it's astounding
0: and so you've obviously you know introduced this into your practice amazingly well and it's a credit to you what are the guidelines and what are the the other colleagues at your hospital and and you know other hospitals around new york and across the states are they are they following down a similar path
1: well where uh, where i am Things are sort of the cultures really started to shift because a colleague and I actually, you know, shortly after I kind of caught this bug, I decided I needed to actually really read the evidence myself. And although I was really inspired by that first conference, I wanted to be I wanted to be the one reading the studies myself and really see how much truth there was there. So I got a grant, a two year grant to basically spend a year reading nutrition science and learning nutrition, evidence based nutrition for chronic disease prevention and treatment, and then design a curriculum for my faculty colleagues. And so we rolled that out in uh, 2014 and all of our colleagues attended. These are senior physicians who were just like me out of of training for a long time. And they all sort of, I think, presenting the science is, is extremely powerful because none of us had ever learned it. And people were blown away by what's actually out there. I've had, I still have people say to me, I can't believe that there's so much research on nutrition. And so we started helping our colleagues not only, not only learn the science, but actually learn how to counsel patients and do it efficiently. And so now the culture at our, at our hospital has really changed around, around prevention and the conversation centers at almost every visit, there is a discussion around food. And that then sort of bleeds into the trainees who are working alongside us and who we're supervising and who are learning that and the medical students. And um, there's this collective understanding that food really matters.
0: And I'm sure there's, I mean, some of those case studies that you were talking about where cholesterol is coming down within four to six weeks, it would, would be overwhelmingly convincing to show the other doctors and medical students.
1: That's exactly right. And in fact, it's funny because you can show people 25 peer-reviewed, published studies, randomized trials, and large epidemiologics, you know, prospective studies. But then you just show them one patient mm. who's diabetes turned around or who's off medications and that's what they remember. And it is, it's pretty um, impressive. And they probably have
0: a patient with very similar looking cholesterol and bloods that so they can go away and do the same thing with. Exactly. That's your workplace at Bellevue Hospital in New York. And I understand you're also doing some work with Universities, Mm -hmm. university. Tell us a little bit more about that and how, or yeah, how you think the curriculum across the country, even internationally, should should change, modify, or tweak in order to pay more attention to prevention of disease.
1: So I'm involved in uh, teaching medical students and resident physicians who, who are in their training about that's about half of my job and what I, what I think is the hardest thing about teaching nutrition to medical students and trainees is that we work within a paradigm that does not, it doesn't emphasize prevention at all, especially prevention through food. So when you talk to, when you talk to medical students about, you know, you should talk to your patients about their diet. It doesn't, it doesn't, they don't totally understand it because they've never been the paradigm that we're in is you have a disease, there's a pill for it or, the way we treat chronic disease is to manage it with medications. And then when you need a procedure, you refer for a procedure. And so it's completely breaking open the box, and it, it it's not a one person. It's not something that one person can change. You can teach the nutrition science and get people excited about it and get them to at least understand the basics and where the evidence lies. But we really we really need. Um, nationally and internationally, a huge frame shift in the way medicine is practiced. And I think that's coming because I think that the people are realizing that the costs of drugs, the costs of healthcare are are obviously astronomical and unsustainable. But there's a lot of players that have an investment also in us keeping things the status quo.
0: Causing some confusion. Right. Okay. So that's a little bit of a background, I guess, as to what you're doing, but I'm sure... You know, people that are listening probably want to understand a little bit more of the practical imp- information. So you're, I mean, you're, some of these medical students, we, we were speaking off air and you said they've had pretty much no nutritional training, which means that their level of nutrition is similar to you know an average everyday person, not necessarily a doctor or anyone, which is just simply due to what can fit into the curriculum, current right. curriculum. What exactly are you teaching them in terms of diet and why?
1: My approach when I teach nutrition is to get people to understand that as much as as much as much it seems like there's confusion out there, and as much as it, the media and other reports might have you believe that nobody knows what's good for us and you hear one thing one day and another thing the other day, there is actually a lot of consensus around what we should be eating. And the evidence really does converge around basic healthy eating patterns that we can all get behind. And I think what I like to teach medical students and and really anyone is that what all good diets have in common is that they're based in less processed foods and they're very, very heavy in plants. So there are sort of three different categories of types of foods and the foods that I think for which there's really It's very, very hard to find a study showing that these foods are are harmful, are foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds. You would have a very hard time finding harm with those foods in a peer-reviewed study that's been properly conducted. And these foods are extraordinarily health-promoting. And then by the same token, there's foods that are, are you pretty much universally acknowledged as being harmful to us. So processed meats, red meats, added sugars, refined grains, very ultra processed foods. Pretty much everyone agrees those are not good for us either. And then there's kind of foods in the middle, which I like to call the debatable or questionable foods like eggs, dairy, poultry, even fish to a large degree, where you can definitely find studies showing benefit, but it's usually when it's compared to diets that are very rich the very harmful foods. So it's always about relative. what you compare it to. Exactly, it's always relative. And they they really pale in comparison. They're not the foundation of a healthy diet. Whether you include them in your diet or not, that's up to you, but they shouldn't be the basis of your diet. The real basis of the diet should still be in plants.
0: So is there any studies to your knowledge that look at- the middle section of the foods, So not the process, but just the middle section. So fish and chicken and eggs and compares it to a directly to a whole food plant-based diet, or is that something that's still yet to come?
1: Well, we have a lot of prospective data, meaning observational data where we're not asking people to do something. We're just watching what they're already doing. And which shows that the people who tend to eat a more plant-based diet have much better outcomes in terms of not just heart disease and diabetes and cancer, but also overall rate of death. In terms of randomized trials where you're actually asking people to eat a certain way and following them for a certain amount of time, those are obviously very hard to do because it's hard to get people to eat a certain way for, for long enough to see outcomes. But even in, even in that regard, we do have very, very good data that the, the diets that are most powerful for disease reversal are diets that are based in plants.
0: Okay And the, I want to dive deep um, a little bit later into some of the important chronic diseases that you know this country, America and you know, other Western countries are seeing what role nutrition plays. But I think it's important to touch on chronic disease and the onset of that disease. There's probably a lot of people listening that are, might be in their teenage, they might be late teenagers, they might be in their 20s or 30s. Yeah. I myself remember when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I felt I was invincible. I probably, to a degree now, still think that I'm a little bit invincible in terms of if I have something cheeky to eat in terms of like really high sugar vegan treat or whatnot. When do these chronic diseases start? Can you shed some light on that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the most compelling data are for cardiovascular disease, which we know actually starts it's well it's well along by the age of 10. Wow. And it's pretty humbling to see, you know, the the two big studies that I'm familiar with are, there are data dating back to 20 or 30 years looking at autopsy studies of U.S. soldiers who were killed in action in the Korean War. And their average age in this series, I think there's about two or 300 young men, and their average age was 22. And when they looked at the blood vessels of the heart, the coronary vessels to look for blockages there. They found them in the vast majority of young men, something like 77% of them already had- These
0: were American soldiers right? and probably just eating eating healthy, but eating a typical- Right. Western Western diet, which was probably high in animal protein and
1: that. Right. So on the outside looked healthy, were clearly qualified to serve and already had 77% of them already had- What's called atherosclerosis, or the buildup of plaque in their coronary vessels, and is,
0: is that a condition which can be reversed? Like, if you've done that damage, so if you're now thirty and but you grew up on a, a diet that was high in animal protein and fat, and you did do some damage to your arteries and there was some plaque buildup, is that something that can be reversed by changing your healthy, uh, changing your eating habits to something healthier, or is it just something that can be you know, maintained and
1: it can absolutely be reversed. And that's actually the point that I, I love to make for my younger patients and for the medical students is that at this point, we are in the business of reversal. We need to be in the business. It's not just prevention, it might be prevention of you might be talking about preventing a heart attack 30 years from now, but right now, people already have the beginnings of the disease. So for everybody, it's really about turning back the clock and turning things back. And so the data are very compelling that not only can we prevent events, but we can actually have those blockages can actually get smaller over time. Our blood vessels and our circulation system can actually return to healthy function within a matter of a few weeks when you actually feed your body the foods that it needs to essentially heal itself.
0: So you, you could be having blockage of arteries and no symptoms in your in your twenties or thirties. I just want to clarify Correct. that. Correct. And your if you change your diet to, to reduce, is it animal fats or animal protein, what are we talking about cutting out specifically in order to give yourself the best chance of unblocking those arteries?
1: So I would say the the biggest players are the animal proteins and fats, which tend to go together, obviously, in the same foods, as well as the added sugars and refined grains in the diet. And that's, when I say refined grains, I'm really talking about white flour, highly processed grain-based foods and sugars that are added to the diet. So not not natural sugars in foods like in fruit, but sugars that are externally added. So,
0: so even if you're following a vegan diet and having ref- the refined um, grains and, you know, high sugar you know refined sugars added you're still putting yourself at risk of these types of you know blockages or narrowing absolutely. arteries
1: absolutely so it's not
0: necessarily just comparing an animal diet to a plant based no. it's it's or it's really just saying a whole food diet without these fats and sugars is going to reverse and give you the best chance of not blocking the arteries
1: that's exactly right and the debate is always sort of framed as animal foods versus sugar that, that yeah. for some reason always gets dichotomized that way. But in reality, there's no, we don't have to choose between those things. <laughs> you know, there's a third way that actually is the way that's the most healthful.
0: Okay. So if we, if we, if we move a little bit further down the track, that's, that's your advice for your medical students and the type of nutrition that you're trying to implement into the curriculum. Just, just coming back to that curriculum a little bit, and just sort of understanding why do you think historically nutrition wasn't in the curriculum in the first place?
1: I think that um, it, even though we've we've had data for for a very long time that food affects health and that food essentially is prevention and medicine, my sense is that the counseling on diet has never been sort of framed as the realm of the physician, at least in modern medical times, which is a real shame. And I don't pretend to feel like I know everything about nutrition. And I think if I wanted someone to really, ideally, I would work with a whole team. I'd work with someone who is a trained dietitian and maybe a health coach and a whole team of people. But I do think physicians have a responsibility to understand the basics and to understand that in an evidence-based way so that they can actually advise people even if it's quickly, because they don't have a lot of time. Even if it's quickly, just give, give people a goalpost, clear up some of the major confusions, tell them a basic eating pattern that's healthy. And the reason that's so important is because study after study shows that for better or for worse, patients trust their doctors, what their doctors say. And it's a huge, it's, it's a responsibility that we have to rise up to because it's not fair to, to not know.
0: And do you think the, I mean, we spoke about this off air, but the, the curriculum, there's, there's so much packed into a four-year course, you know, the media and, you know, public can be a little bit harsh on doctors in general, forgetting that they're learning so much. Right. Does something have to be removed in order to add nutrition? What? What? How's that going to work?
1: Yeah. So that's what I think a lot of schools are try- are grappling with because there is a big push to start teaching more nutrition and lifestyle change. I think this, many of the students want it. I see that at my institution, but it's, the question is, you know, you're, you're literally, the, the curriculum is packed. And I do think that everything there is important. I mean, I was taught the nutrition that I was taught was these very rare micronutrient deficiencies like, you know, Simon or, and then I, you know, have I seen a case of beriberi in the past yeah. 15 years in New York city? No, um, but it's good that I know it. I just think it's, can things be shifted so that we actually proportionally emphasize the things that we tend to see in the United States or in other countries where chronic disease is the major player that you're going to see when you practice medicine, I certainly would never want to be the person to suggest that medical school should last longer because I know I I was ready to graduate (laughs) when I graduated. So I don't don't have the answer to that. I think there's probably room in the final year of medical school where there's a lot of elective time to devote some of that time to at least hands-on. But the the training on nutrition and the importance and role of lifestyle has to start from day one so that people realize how important it is.
0: Sure. Okay, so so I think... What we should move into now is some some really common questions. Yeah, that that I it. I'm personally getting, and I know <laughs> that you're getting. Um, so a little bit more practical again. And we just touched on refined sugar. I think it might be worthwhile explaining the difference between sugar in a fruit. No in a peach or in a mango or strawberry mm-hmm. compared to the sugar that's added to Cheerios or mm-hmm. any other sort of processed type of food?
1: That's one of the most common questions that I'm asked by patients and on social media. And it's a really important point because the differences are vast. So the sugar that's added to foods, um, first of all, it's there's something like hundred different names for added sugar. So it's very tricky and you might not see sugar on the ingredient label. You might see a different name, something that, you know, like there's high fructose corn syrup, there's cane sugar. People ask me, oh, is honey any better? Is brown sugar better than white sugar? What about agave? What about molasses and, and on and on and on. But overwhelmingly, those are all added sugars, and they pretty much biologically function the same way, which is that they do a couple of things. One is that they're considered what we call empty calories, meaning that they have almost no nutritional value, and they don't give us anything that we need. They tend to be pretty rapidly s- stored as extra calories. And so seeing as overweight and obesity are huge issues, and weight gain is an issue for most people as life goes on, you don't want extra so calories. So sweeteners,
0: which you know, are marketed as a healthy sweetening option right. and not necessarily no. doing the right thing by the public.
1: No. And so um, when you take, with, with regard to the actual question around fructose, which is the type of sugar that's found in fruit, when you're packaging, when you eat a piece of fruit and you're packaging that fructose up in the fruit, it comes along with fiber, it comes with antioxidants, it comes with other phytonutrients that actually ends up ends up causing a very different effect in your body. We know we have really great science that fruit is actually, not only does it not cause blood sugar problems, it actually prevents blood sugar problems. So big study out of China, half a million people, it was published last year, showed that eating one piece of fruit a day, just one piece of fruit a day, lowered a person's risk of getting diabetes or problems with their blood sugar by 12%.
0: And I'll, I'll get the link for that and put that uh, below this podcast for anyone else. Yeah. To have a read of that.
1: Absolutely. You. And so, and then if you already have diabetes, even if you already have blood sugar problems and you eat fruit, eating fruit actually lowered the risk of dying of anything. Right? So like we shouldn't 10%. be scared of
0: sugar in fruit, in a whole fruit.
1: Exactly. As opposed to the added sugars, again, when you, especially when you eat fructose which is found in it's half of what's found in table sugar or it's high fructose corn syrup it actually kind of goes to your liver and your liver starts spewing out fats wow. and then that starts to cause obviously all kinds of problems throughout the body including insulin resistance which we can get into later and increases your risk of diabetes so so I, there's a huge difference between fruit and and added and the sugars that are added
0: okay and and a little extension from that is another common question around fruit is what about fruit juice and the, all the, you know, smoothie juice bars that are popping up and the, the, the various recipes to make fruit juices at home. Yeah. How do they compare to grabbing a piece of fruit and eating it as a whole fruit?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I always recommend chewing fruit whenever possible for the simple fact that it slows down the process. And it delays the rise in blood sugar, and you get all the fiber intact, which is the, probably the most important thing. So, nothing is taken away from the fruit. You're getting the whole package in its most beneficial form. Fruit juice is, you know, you're still getting a lot of vitamins and antioxidants and phytonutrients, which is great, but you are removing most of the fiber. And so that. Contend fruit juice has been linked to higher rates of diabetes, for example, um, simply because you are isolating out the fructose again. So I don't tend to recommend that. And then smoothies, you know, smoothies are really fascinating because for a lot of people, they are a great way to get more fruits and vegetables into their diet. And so I think that's fantastic. And I think with a smoothie, you're getting the fiber. The issue that I see with smoothies is that when people add them to their diet, if they're struggling with weight, or if they have a metabolic disease like diabetes, just simply adding the smoothie to your diet and not taking anything else away will just give you a lot of extra calories. And some of these smoothies are are, are loaded. Loaded with calories. It's not just fruits and veggies and water. By added... the time you
0: put some nut butter and stuff. Oh, in forget there, about and it. you you can get up to seven, eight hundred calories in a it's exactly easy.
1: And if you're anything like me, you'll suck that thing back in That's you right. know, 10 minutes. So then you don't you don't yeah. give your body a chance to feel full. And so you kind of bypass the brain satiety radar. So as a meal replacement or as a, you know, it's a great way to get fruits and vegetables into your diet, no problem at all. But I I for people who are actually trying to lose weight or control a metabolic disease, it's not opt, it's not optimal.
0: And you you just touched on diabetes. Let's let's learn a little bit more. Are you is diabetes something that you see clinically a lot?
1: Not only a lot. I would say probably every 40 minutes.
0: What's the what's the the data? What's the the incidence of diabetes in in America?
1: So in the United States right now, the latest figures, if I'm not mistaken, are that about twelve to thirteen percent of the population has diabetes, primarily type two diabetes. And the probably the most concerning figure is that thirty eight percent of adults in America have pre diabetes, which is sort oh, of wow. the early stage, the high risk stage of of getting diabetes. And so we're looking at literally an epidemic that's going to explode.
0: And on top of that, there, there would be some that aren't even diagnosed. Like in, Correct. We, we went to the premiere last night of Eating You Alive. And one of the case studies in there was a fellow who had diabetes and he didn't even know.
1: That's right. And I see that all the time. I see that all the time. People have no idea.
0: How How are these people being treated currently?
1: So the current paradigm is... You diagnose diabetes typically through a blood a blood test or two. And you depending on how high a person's blood sugar is and has been, you determine how many medications they need to go on.
0: I and I just want to clarify this is type two diabetes way to Yep. Correct. Okay.
1: Type two. And so if you know, depending on the scenario, you might actually start insulin right off the bat, or you might be able to start pills and not insulin, but in almost all cases, the current traditional medical paradigm is to start medications right away.
0: So clinically speaking are you doing anything different to the that traditional sort of treatment?
1: Yeah, so I think in my practice what I what I do when I diagnose a patient with diabetes is I make it abundantly clear to them if they have type 2 diabetes that this is a far and away a lifestyle related disease. And so depending on their ability or interest in changing their lifestyle, they may not ever need medications, or they may start on some, but be able to come off the medications if they change their diet. So I set it up as a lifestyle related disease because that is what it is in almost in the vast majority of cases of type two diabetes. And so the person has from the get-go, the understanding that when they have a new diagnosis of type two diabetes, that doesn't commit them to medications for the rest of their life. They can actually turn things around in almost all cases. And then I talked to them about Basically, what does the evidence base show as far as how do you turn diabetes around? If you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, how do you get rid of it? Through food and exercise. And so we know that you know, one of the critical things is weight loss if you're overweight, but not everyone who gets type 2 diabetes is overweight. Some people are actually at a healthy body weight.
0: So we can identify with the type of patient you're talking about. Is, is this a 40, 50, 60-year-old woman or is this a potentially a kid? Who 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 are you saying? Yeah,
1: here? great question. I, you know, so type two diabetes is now occurring at all age groups. It's starting in the very young age groups where we didn't used to see teenagers and preteens with type two diabetes. We're seeing that now because it's happening earlier and earlier related to primarily increasing body weight and overweight and our food habits. But so it could be anyone of any age. So losing weight is a big part of it if someone's overweight. And then the other part has to do with exercise and eating patterns and the eating pattern that is most evidence-based and beneficial is eating less processed foods and eating more plant foods. And so that actually includes foods that a lot of my patients are like, their eyes are wide open when I tell them they, they should eat fruit. And I had, you know, I had a guy I just saw yesterday who said, you know, I said, why do you think, what are what are the foods that you think are giving you diabetes? And he says, well, I'm Puerto Rican, which I happen to be also. And he said, I'm Puerto Rican, so it's, it's got to be the rice and beans. And I said, well, that's interesting because- from talking to you, you haven't eaten rice and beans in a really long time, so you still have diabetes. And so there's a lot of misconceptions around that. The evidence does not show that rice and beans cause diabetes, doesn't show that fruit causes diabetes, doesn't show that oats or oatmeal or barley or quinoa or beans or nuts or seeds or vegetables, none of that causes diabetes. That actually reverses diabetes.
0: So just at a, uh, a micro level, to, to understand a little bit more on the science or physiology behind this, What are the foods that are causing diabetes or insulin resistance in the first place? And and how is that actually happening?
1: Great question. So I was really surprised to learn when I started actually reading the science and studying nutrition that the food, the category of food that's most closely linked to insulin resistance is processed meat. So processed meat is essentially any meat. It could be red or white meats that are smoked salted, fermented, cured or have added preservatives. So it includes deli meats that people eat on a regular, you know, very commonly consumed foods like ham, pepperoni, bacon, sausage, salami, hot dogs, cold cuts,
0: which is amazing because I think the World Health Organization has classified those as carcinogenic. Correct. Yeah. I know in Australia they're still in most service stations and every single grocery store.
1: Right, they're in our schools, they're in our hospitals.
0: So they're in, they're in your face. It's hard to avoid them, especially if you're eating them regularly.
1: And if you eat, if you eat a piece of processed meat, your sugar will not go up right afterwards because it doesn't have a lot of carbohydrate. And so people get confused and think that's healthy for me. That doesn't make my sugar go up. When in reality, type two diabetes is a problem of how you handle carbohydrates. It's not a problem of carbohydrates causing it. It's a problem of how your body handles carbohydrates. So when you eat a diet that's rich in foods like processed meat, your insulin just doesn't work very well. You're insulin resistant. And then when you eat carbohydrates, you can't tolerate them. Your sugar goes way up disproportionately than it should. So one serving a day of processed meat, which is essentially two pieces of bacon or two slices of ham increases your risk of getting diabetes by 37%.
0: And there'd be an astounding number of Americans and Australians that easily have that amount of processed meat per day. Right. I mean, bacon's on so many breakfasts.
1: Right. So I share that information with my patients. And, you know, after processed meat, there's probably a statistical tie between sugar-sweetened beverages and red meat as far as linked to type 2 diabetes. So almost everybody knows they shouldn't be drinking sodas sugar-sweetened beverages, but they just don't know the processed meat and red meat link. And that information has been out there for a very long time and is very credible. And it's consistent across almost all studies that look at it. So getting those foods out of the diet is huge for reversing diabetes. And to some degree, we have very good evidence that actually all forms of animal protein increase your risk. We have decent data that poultry, that eggs, egg whites, which are commonly thought of as a healthy food, you know, a good source of protein, and even fish increase the risk of diabetes, at least in the North American studies. So getting those foods out of the diet is actually very helpful for people in terms of reversing their insulin resistance. To get into what is actually going on, why does this even happen? It has to do with the way that when we consume excess calories, excess dietary fats, particularly saturated fats, which are the type that are more common in animal foods. And we also consume things like iron in animal form. That all works in this sort of um, symphony together to cause inflammation inside our cells. And when you have inflammation inside your cells and fat buildup in, in specific organs, like your, your muscle cells, which are not supposed to be storing fat, and your liver, which really isn't also supposed to be storing a lot of fat, your insulin just doesn't work very well.
0: I mean, just to summarize that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I personally have heard this debate the last you know, forever about does sugar cause diabetes or is it fat? What's the culprit? But right. it sounds like from what you're saying, it's excess calories from the wrong types of food, right. not one thing in particular.
1: Right. And it really matters what your, what your nutrients are packaged with. And then we see this across every type of illness that we can think of. So eating protein, it matters very much where you get your protein from when you look at your disease risk. And diabetes is probably is one of the best examples because there's a, such a marked difference between eating plant sources of protein, like beans or quinoa or tofu, and eating animal sources of protein when it comes to diabetes risk. Um, and it has to do with what it's packaged with, because nobody sits down and just eats a bowl of pure amino acids with nothing else around them, we're typically just eating food. And so it comes packaged with iron in its animal form. It comes packaged with advanced glycation end products. It comes packaged with saturated fats and all of these things that promote inflammation when you're getting it from an animal source. And the storage of fat in our organs is what causes insulin, not to the signaling of insulin doesn't work. And when the insulin signaling doesn't work, your body can't metabolize carbohydrates. So of course, then when you eat a piece of fruit, sugar is going to go through the roof and then you're going to blame the fruit when it's actually not That's the a symptom food. of
0: something else. Exactly. Okay. So let's say I have diabetes. I come and see you. I'm in my mid forties. What can I expect from changing my diet in terms of my prognosis? If I decide to listen to you, Say,
1: <laughs> you sound skeptical.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm playing the role of the patient, okay. so um, don't worry, you've convinced me. If if I come in and I've never heard of a plant based diet, I've, I've, sure. I've heard of these weird vegan places, sure, you know, and I think they're a bunch of hippies. But <laughs> so I've come into your clinic, and I hear for the first time from you that I should look at my nutrition as a way of helping with my treatment. What In terms of just quantifying, what can I expect in terms of quality of life or medications or further issues down the track if I do change my lifestyle?
1: So the science shows and my personal experience shows that almost everyone gets better and in most cases dramatically so and proportional to how much you change, proportional to how much you move towards a whole foods plant-based diet. The, whether your diabetes your type two diabetes is going to completely be cured or reversed depends on largely on how long you've had it. So if you've had type two diabetes for a very long time, and I have people who come to me, they've had it for 25 years. Those guys are probably always going to have type two diabetes, but I've seen them drastically reduce their medication requirement. In fact, I have a patient who I've been following who within, within a week, her dose of insulin was cut in half. Wow. And in fact, sometimes I have trouble keeping up. I have to call patients within 24 to 36 hours because they get better so quickly that I have to scale back their medications. It's an art that I never learned. I mean, it's a skill I never learned how to de-prescribe medications (laughs) and I'm quickly learning um, because diet's that that powerful.
0: If someone is listening and has diabetes or is encouraging a family member or friend, I think that's an important thing to consider is consulting the doctor to ensure that dialing down of medications is done under their guidance?
1: Absolutely. This is That's an extremely important point because if you try to do this by yourself without some guidance, as far as your medications, that goes for blood pressure medications as well, you could find yourself in a potentially life-threatening situation. So you do definitely need to partner with um, a healthcare provider on that.
0: Okay. So we understand that the changing the diet is very beneficial. You should consult with your doctor, but what happens if, back to my example, I- go and see my local doctor and I say to him that I want to try this plant-based diet and he hasn't been educated on that before. What should I do to, you know, I'm adamant, I want to do it. What should I do to make sure that I can do it safely and have him on board?
1: So I think that's unfortunately still a pretty common scenario, although things are definitely starting to change. I, My advice for a patient like that or for you would be, <laughs> <laughs> would be to, really spend some time educating yourself and there's some really re- great reputable sources of information both for physicians and for patients where you can learn about a healthy way to adopt a whole foods plant-based diet and once don't make any changes until you've started to really educate yourself and then once you understand then when you go to your doctor you have a, you're in a better position to say you know, I am going to get enough protein and just, you know, I am going to get the nutrients that I need. Here's where I learned about it. And I'm happy to share the resources with you. My request is that you, you know, can you support me in this? And I'm going to be monitoring my blood sugar or my blood pressure. And can you help me if I need help decreasing the medications? Let's just see how it goes.
0: Okay so just sliding on from diabetes you mentioned eggs before and eggs white perhaps not being the healthiest form of protein that you know as they are marketed as I'm interested to know a little bit more about choline and carnitine and you know the role that that has to play on our health or detriment of health
1: So the interesting thing that um has come out in the science in the past I don't know 15 to 20 years is this concept of the microbiome, right? So our gut bacteria, primarily, these are the trillions of microorganisms that live on our skin and in our bodies and primarily in our intestine. And they have an incredible role in directing our health, something that was just underappreciated until fairly recently. And one of the studies that came out that really highlighted this in an extremely elegant way was published in 2013, where they took volunteers and they had them eat red meat, eggs, and fish. And those are foods that contain, in the case of eggs and fish, that contain choline. They're some of the most choline-rich foods. That's a nutrient that's found in actually throughout, it's in plants as well, but it's very high in those foods. And carnitine, which is actually very high in red meat, which is an amino acid. So what they found is that when people eat those foods, those nutrients, choline and carnitine, are metabolized by our gut bacteria, into something called trimethylamine. And then that molecule is further metabolized in our liver to a, what is subsequently been shown to be an extremely harmful compound called TMAO or trimethylamine N-oxide. So TMAO has actually been directly linked to atherosclerosis. So to the buildup of plaque in our blood vessels it also promotes a clotting of the blood. So the platelets tend to be more sticky. And so what this all has translated into in terms of disease is that it actually increases our risk of heart disease and stroke and even early death. In fact, we actually now know that if you say you, you know, you go to the emergency room with chest pain and you think you're having a heart attack, we can measure your TMAO levels in your blood and urine and predict Your outcome at 30 days. We can predict your risk of having a heart attack in the next 30 days. So it correlates that well. And so you can see that it's kind of a double whammy. So it's not just the saturated fat or the heme iron or whatever it was in the eggs and the fish and the red meat. It's how those nutrients interact with our gut bacteria. And so the most telling thing about this was a follow-up study that was done in vegans. And the researcher said, you know, hey, let's take a bunch of vegans. We know that, we know that the way you eat affects the type of gut bacteria you have because yeah, our gut bacteria sure. totally mirror our diets and they, they mirror it very quickly. So they, they said, let's take a bunch of vegans and let's feed them a steak and see if they make any of this TMAO substance. Maybe they have different gut bacteria. They couldn't find vegans who are willing to eat a steak for this study. So they fed them the carnitine pills. Okay, And lo and behold, with, when they went to measure their blood levels of TMAO and their urine levels of TMAO, they were almost undetectable, much lower than in omnivores. Because when you eat a plant-based diet, especially long-term, you tend to have very different gut bacteria. And you, in this case, just don't have the gut bacteria that contribute to making TMAO at all. So what does this all mean to the average person? It means that if you're an omnivore and you're eating meat, eggs, and dairy regularly, you have those gut bacteria that make this molecule. And so when you eat more of those foods, you keep making more of that, that harmful nutrient. Whereas if you're following a plant-based diet and you eat some choline, say from plant sources, you don't make that TMA
0: And do you get enough choline? For-
1: absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely.
0: So no one needs to be worried no,
1: about no. hitting
0: their daily no No, 99.9%
1: energy. of people get plenty of choline from plants and... And then when it comes to carnitine, we make carnitine. We make carnitine in our liver and so our kidneys. So it's not essential. It's not be... a non-essential amino acid. We do just great taking the essential ones and making carnitine from it.
0: Okay. So folate and carnitine are converted into, you know, there's a couple of different conversions going on, but ultimately to TMAO and right. this can affect the health of the artery wall. Correct. What, again, bringing it back to what we would see um, as a patient, What's the end result of that left untreated? If it just keeps going, what are, what are we talking?
1: This is, you know, you have blood vessels all over your body. So it's not just your heart that's affected. It's it's, it's We're talking about risk of stroke. We're talking about risk of kidney disease. There's a huge, a lot of new interest in looking at the relationship between TMAO and risk of kidney problems. It's been even linked to diabetes and promotes insulin resistance, and it's been linked to cancer risk. So- most of the data are for cardiovascular outcomes, but this is not something that we want a lot of in our bodies. And so we actually have the power to direct how much TMA we make by simple food choices.
0: And I, I think again, going back to last night's documentary, they made a point that got a few laughs from the crowd was for men with e- get ED being one of the first symptoms erectile dysfunction. So, I mean, right. I, I'm sure that hits home with a lot of the fellas ask at
1: all age groups right
0: okay so um moving moving on from the the choline and carnitine discussion another really interesting topic and question that i'm commonly getting is is a keto you know animal based keto diet healthy and how does that stack up against this vegan or plant based diet
1: yeah, I got a lot of questions about that. And there's so much interest in keto diets right now. I think that overall, what what I, what I I'm seeing, if I had to sum it up, is that there's the degree of enthusiasm for this way of eating is far outpacing the amount of evidence that we have. And so I'll talk about what that really means. So when you're talking about traditional keto diet. So an animal-based keto diet, what you what you're talking about doing is eating primarily animal sources of fat, some plant fats as well like in oils and avocados and nuts, but you also are eating quite a bit of animal products and you are completely you're eating an adequate amount of protein for that diet but it, mostly animal sources and you're eating almost no carbohydrates that's sort of the definition of a ketogenic diet. And so when you deprive your body of carbohydrates which you know we need we need when they're converted to glucose that's our main source of energy. So when you deprive your body of carbohydrates, your body has a backup emergency method which is to take fats whether they're from your own fat storage or from fats that you're eating and turn them into ketones. So this this is a way of eating that has the only real evidence for this is for certain forms of epilepsy or seizure disorders that are typically in children for which medications have not been working. And think about what a, you know, a relatively small subset of people that we're talking about. We're talking about primarily children who have intractable seizure disorders who haven't responded to medications. And for those guys, there's solid evidence that there may be a benefit to, to a ketogenic diet. But now what we're seeing is ketogenic diets are being adopted by everybody at all ages.
0: What do you put that down to like what why the craze?
1: I think that we've gone from you know it's sort of an extension a little bit of the Atkins craze and we 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 fell out of you know we fell out of fats in the 70s where everybody said oh let's follow a low fat diet but what people actually did was not necessarily eat a low fat diet they continue to consume more calories and a, pretty much the same amount of fat and they eat a lot of processed foods. so that wasn't a good thing and then we we had a love affair with protein and now we're moving towards a love affair with fat and i think the there are a few good things about even an animal based ketogenic diet which is that you're you are eliminating processed grain based foods and you are eliminating added sugars and that's fantastic because those are clearly not good so for us that's something
0: that the two diets agree on.
1: Correct. Well, they, they should agree on. Yes. Mm. The harms are that you are also eliminating some of the most healthful foods on the planet around which there's an abundance of evidence of benefits. So the one that, you know, we've talked a lot about fruits and their benefit, and we know that actually just eating, you know, for the average person, eating, eating a piece of eating fruit is actually correlated with lower risk of death. It's correlated with lower risk of stroke and and heart disease. And we talked about diabetes. Um, So you're excluding fruit, except for berries Berries, for the most part. You're eating some vegetables, hopefully, the leafy green vegetables and the cruciferous vegetables, which is also great. And you're probably, if you're doing it right, you're probably eating more vegetables than the average Western diet is. So that's a good thing too. But excluding categories of foods like whole grains and beans, lentils, you know peas, those le- that legume category, that concerns me, and that concerns most nutrition scientists. Because if I had to pick one category of food around which there's the probably the most benefit of diabetes reduction, heart disease reduction, and overall health, and cancer reduction, it's whole grains. There's no other food as potent as whole grains which, in reducing.
0: I mean, seems to be common theme is a lot of people are scared of those carbohydrates, right? Right. And how would you explain that to someone who says, "Well, those foods cause me to put on weight."
1: Well, I would tell you know the the truth is that people people are very confused about the term carbohydrates because they're lumping they're lumping, you know, fruit and with fruit loops. You know, they're lumping two very unhealthy type of carbohydrate rich foods with healthy carbohydrate rich foods. And so I I that's the distinction that needs to occur from the beginning and whole grains are they more calorie dense than vegetables of, you know, the non-starchy vegetables, of course, but we need calories. We need, we need, a, this is a great source of energy. Should you eat only whole grains all day? Of course not. Eating just three servings, which is, you know, half a cup of oatmeal or a slice of whole grain bread or eating quinoa or foods like that are actually shown to be the most potent of all the foods at reducing the risk of cancer, for example, especially colorectal cancer, heart disease, diabetes. So, I have a huge concern about completely excluding those foods from the diet. And then beans, I mean, you know, that's that's an amazing source of plant protein. When you get when you get protein from lentils or chickpeas or soy or any other kind of bean, that's an anti-inflammatory way of getting your protein. And it's also common to all of the, you know, we you and I talked earlier about blue zones and mm parts of the world where they have huge parts of the population that live to be a hundred or more and a very vital, what they all have in common is a high consumption of legumes. So, and we know that legumes are actually the strongest predictor of survival in older adults. So I think something like one serving a day lowers your risk of dying by 7%. So it's, these are health promoting foods that when you exclude them, I, I, you're left with, I'm concerned with what you're left with. And do the- you
0: you know could you could you categorically say that the this traditional keto diet that we're speaking about which is high in fat and and has these animal meats in it would be increasing your chance of developing chronic disease even if it's silent yes. while you're doing it now as a 20 or 30 year old
1: so the truth is that we have we have a lot of studies looking at low carb diets but that tends to be a pretty heterogeneous group so The literature on low carb diets, there are a number of very big studies showing much higher risk of cancer and a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, as well as a higher risk of premature death. Not all studies, but most. And the problem is that a keto diet is one type of low carb diet, but it's a very, very low carb diet. So someone who's a proponent of a keto diet might argue, well, those studies looking at low carb diets where maybe they were, maybe they were allowing them 120 grams of carbs a day, but I'm only consuming 30. So that's that doesn't apply to me. But we don't have a study showing that ketogenic diets promote long-term health. We don't have a single study showing that. Most ketogenic diet studies that we have now are up to, I think, the longest one, it might be a couple of years. They're shorter-term studies. And so you're, you're taking a risk when you do that because the closest evidence that we have suggests that it's a harmful way to eat when it's based in animal foods. And we don't have evidence to the contrary.
0: Okay, and I think a common question off the back of that is that you, know, you, you suggest that you're taking a risk by eating a keto diet, but let's say I'm overweight and I want to lose weight and I've been reading them in the magazines that the keto diet can help me lose weight. Can I lose weight eating a whole food plant-based diet?
1: So you can lose weight either way. Losing weight is, uh, there's a lot of ways to lose weight and some of them good for you and some of them not so great for you. And it's at the end of the day, it's all about how many calories you consume relative to how many you expend. And there's, you, you know, there's ways to, the the main question is, can you sustain it? So if you put yourself on a diet that's very, very low in calories, can you last for the rest of your life? When, what about when you get hungry again and you start eating more again, you're gonna rebound. So weight maintenance is actually, you know, keeping the weight off is actually for most people harder than losing the weight in the first place. And the issue is that people, we, we, don't, we don't have science that people can stay on a ketogenic diet long-term. We do have science that people eating plant-based diets Tend to across the board have healthier body weights compared to omnivores, and we have great science that people eating plant-based diets tend to lose more weight than omnivorous diets, even when they're not asked to count calories. Which I don't know about you, but counting calories sucks. Yeah, no one wants to count calories. the The the, the perfect diet would be one where you just ate you just ate food, and it happened to be food that was dense in nutrients and lower in calories so that you could eat as much as you wanted until you felt full and you felt good and you felt energetic and you still lost weight if you needed to. And that's a whole foods plant based diet.
0: And I think an important part of that is whole food plant based diet, distinguishing the difference between that and letting processed plant based or vegan foods creep in to the diet. Do you you feel like some of those processed foods are easier to overconsume?
1: Of course. Absolutely. I I think that the more processed the food, the the less fiber it tends to have and the more dense in calories it is. So you you can Mm -hmm. consume more calories in a sitting without feeling full and then eat again later because you still haven't really, you know, you're not fully satiated. So it's easy to over, over consume calories when there's a lot of oil or added sugar or white flour. And so that's definitely a concern for people who are trying to not gain weight or even trying to lose weight.
0: So take home message there is you can lose weight on a plant-based diet. And the best way to do that is to do it on whole food based diet, cutting out processed foods. You mentioned oil I know we're getting to the end of this podcast, but I think that is a particularly interesting question. It's always a hot debate. There is great proponents for coconut oil and, and we see olive oil, you know, headlines about olive oil in the Mediterranean diet. What, is the truth behind oil what should we eat what should we not eat
1: well this is a this is an area of a lot of controversy and i think that if i just you know if i can respond just in terms of what my what i see in the science and what i've read in the science is that in general where again just like with protein where you get your fat your source of your fat really matters so if you're getting it from an animal source or a plant source so with respect to oils if you're eating plant oils vegetable based oils um those are associated with health advantages over eating animal-based fats like butter or lard or just fats that you might find in meat so consistently when studies you know, if you look at the American heart association's website they'll say consume they actually say that you should consume vegetable oils and that's largely because when those are compared to animal fats those vegetable oils look pretty darn good it's all relative like we said before now, what about compared to no oil? What about eating oils compared to eating plants from whole fats from whole plant foods like nuts or avocados? So, most people, the science seems to suggest that we probably should be getting it mostly from whole foods because then again, it's not so easy to overconsume the calories. I mean, if you look at a tablespoon of oil as 120 calories, it's like a slice and a half of bread and you're consuming that really fast, or if you have a salad dressing with a few tablespoons of olive oil, that's 500 calories right off the bat. So when you get it from nuts or avocados, it tends the fiber in those foods tends to slow you down. And so for a lot of reasons, it's probably better to get it from whole plant foods. And finally, when it comes to people who are actually living with chronic diseases and have heart disease and diabetes, the the studies that we have of them getting better and turning disease around were not done with oils. They were done with so plant So of all foods. people, they yeah. should be avoiding oils, yes.
0: processed yes. oils. And just, just so we can clarify this, you know, I don't want people to be scared of fats. We need fats. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a, an essential nutrient. Well, the, yes. the unsaturated fats are. So by cutting out oil they're not, they're, and, and still eating your avocados and your nuts and your seeds, they're still going to be getting all of the essential fats that they need.
1: That's right. Well, they, you know, in the if you're the 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 one sort of subcategory is the omega threes, where you would need to put attention to, you know, I typically recommend the plant sources of omega threes, which of course are walnuts and ground flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, even soy to some degree and leafy greens to some degree. And there's some you know many experts do recommend that if you're following a fully plant-based diet that you consider taking a direct DHA and EPA supplement which is the active form of omega-3 because not everybody is as good as the next person at converting omega-3s so that's a that's that's sort of an optional thing but a lot of people are recommending it but you can definitely get your all the fats that you need from plants those those DHA and EPA supplements come from algae and that's where you know, that's the, that's the most direct source. source. Exactly.
0: Okay. I promise I'm going to let you go after this last question. Oh no, this is fine. (laughs) We, uh, we just touched on one supplement take home message to anyone out there who is on a 100% plant-based or vegan diet other than, you know, looking at their omegas and evaluating their diet and working out if they need to have an algae omega-3 supplement. Are there any other supplements that they should be looking at or speaking to their doctor about?
1: So the one supplement that everybody, everybody, it's non, in my world, it's non-negotiable is B12. Yep. Yeah. So B12 is non-negotiable. And honestly, a lot of omnivores are deficient in B12 too. And it's uh, the Institute of Medicine here recommends everyone over the age of 50 take B12. So it's not just the realm of plant-based eaters, but B12 is a vital nutrient that when you get deficient in can cause irreversible neurologic problems. So you just don't want to play with that. Take a B12 supplement. You can get it from fortified foods, but it's just not as reliable.
0: So even if you're adding your nutritional yeast or whatnot to your food, safer to take the supplement.
1: Right. Be and done with it. That's right. So that's B12. And, and the other one that, you know, the other sort of nutrients to consider or nutrients of concern, I would say would be calcium. And I think that we in the plant-based world need to be um, conscious about how much calcium we're getting. And it's not because you can only get calcium from dairy. We can get plenty of calcium from leafy greens. And in fact, it's more bioavailable from many leafy greens, not from spinach, but from kale, from collard greens, and certainly from broccoli and a lot of other sources. We need to be conscious of making sure we're eating those foods. And so another great place to get calcium is from the non-dairy milks, which if you're buying commercial brands, they're typically four to. With calcium. And that's, some
0: of the tofu's, I think, have calcium. Tofu is as well. a great
1: source. If it's an organic calcium packed tofu, that's a fantastic source. And then iodine is another concern for people who don't have any salt in their diet. So a lot of people who are really following an extremely sort of cleaned up dietary plan, whole food, plant based, no oil, no sugar, no salt, those guys need to think about iodine. So getting, you know, if you like your Himalayan salt or your sea salt, you can get iodized sea salt, or you can take an iodine supplement. And there's, um, I'll send you some links with reputable places so you can find out exactly how much you need, but you need to make sure you're getting enough iodine. And then the last one is probably vitamin D, which is, um, we could do probably a whole Mm. two hour podcast on, but the, the bottom line there is that many, many people are deficient. We live in a, we live in societies where you know we're not exposed to sunlight, where we would normally make vitamin D. Some people just aren't very good at making vitamin D even when they are exposed to sunlight. But most of us are covered up in offices, indoors all day and just not making enough vitamin D. And especially when you live in New York City like I do, where it feels like the summer's never going to get here, you're not getting vitamin D made in your skin in the winter. So um I recommend everybody take a vitamin D supplement omnivore or plant based and just take the recommended daily allowance for most people that's between 400 and 800 units but it, you can take 1000 for most people and be comfortable at that at that and, and would you say
0: that's just as important as calcium from a, a bone Absolutely. Mineral density sort of point of view.
1: And there's and there's a lot more that goes into bones than even those two nutrients, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. Um, so it's not just a simple calcium and vitamin D, but, th- but to absorb the calcium that you're getting from your collard greens and your kale, you do need adequate levels of vitamin D.
0: Okay. Well, I would like to personally thank you. This has been a very inspiring and riveting conversation. I've learned a lot myself. I'm sure the listeners are going to love it and it's been very practical. So I think it's there's a lot of take-home messages here. I hope this is the first of many podcasts. love to get you back on next time I'm in New York. Me too. We could be talking for hours. So, <laughs> I going to say. Um, yeah. Thank you Sounds very great. much. I know your time is super precious. So really appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Simon. You too. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.